Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. If you're like me, you're bogged down in the tsunami of information online about ecological design, techniques for best practice, and how and what to implement first. There's some articles and blogs that have supporting information and some that conflict, and it's really tough to tell what's right or what's right for you. The truth is, until you have a framework to guide you through all of this noise, more information can just serve to paralyze your progress. And that's why I want to tell you about something exciting that I've been working on with ecosystem restoration camps. We've now put out an online training from 18 of the world's top practitioners in ecological restoration who will walk you through five modules designed to explain the most essential information to get you moving forward on your regenerative project right away. The course covers things like how to identify causes of landscape degradation, restoration of any zone types from wild to agricultural and urban, and most importantly, a step-by-step process on how to gather information from your site to create a customized restoration plan for your unique needs and context. You'll learn from people like John D. Liu, Neil Spackman, Ramis Kent, Lisa Shaw, and many more, including me, Oliver Gaucher, as your facilitator through design criteria. Seeing as most of us need to be social distancing right now, you can work through all five modules from the comfort of your home, or just choose the modules that you would like to take based on your own interests and budget. I'm incredibly proud of this course. It gives you the chance to learn how to restore any piece of land close to your heart, regardless of the setting or climate, and just as importantly, how to create businesses that will fund it. So reserve your place today at ecosystemrestorationcamps.org under the Get Involved tab. There's also a direct link in the show notes for this episode. Imagine that this quarantine could be the time that you used to create a restoration plan for your land that launches you into amazing action when it's over. Together we can come out of this situation better than ever before. I can't wait to see you on the course. Alright, hi and welcome everyone to another episode in the Homesteading series. This will actually be the last interview before a special episode to wrap up this series and I'm really glad that I was able to get this conversation because today I'll be sharing a perspective on the transition to a homesteading lifestyle that I know that a lot of you out there can relate to. Today's guest, Nicholas Bertner, is a permaculture designer, consultant, and educator through his organization, The School of Permaculture. Now, I caught Nicholas at a good moment for this interview because, like many of us, he's in a period of transition with his family in which they are looking to move to a more resilient and independent homesteading lifestyle. Though he's been gardening and working on self-sufficiency projects from his suburban home for years, he and his family are looking to expand to a larger space where they can provide more of their own needs from the land. In this interview, we'll talk about the thought process behind looking for a good homesteading site, and what options the new space could provide. Nicholas talks about the unique context and climate where he lives in Texas, and how that influences his options as well. We also break down the importance of community for resilient living, and how investing time and resources at the local level can be one of the most important aspects to urban and suburban homestead living. Now in the next couple of weeks, I'll be putting out new content around resilient living during the challenges of this health crisis, and techniques and projects that you can start from anywhere right away 
to help prepare yourself and your community for the transition out of this lockdown period and the economic challenges that are likely to affect us all. Thank you so much to those of you listeners who have been writing to me to check in and share ideas and ask questions in these last few weeks. It means the world to me to connect with those of you in the Abundant Edge Network and know that the information is making a difference in your day through this podcast. And the best part about making this show to me has always been the connections and relationships that it's helped to build. And I appreciate you guys more than ever. Now, with that said, I'll hand things over now to Nicholas. Hey, Nicholas, thanks so much for finally, uh, you know, connecting with me over this. We've both been following each other's work for a little while. It's great to uh, finally get to talk to you over this, uh, this format. How are you doing down in Texas? I'm doing really well, uh, Oliver. Thanks. Um, uh, and I have been following what you're doing and it looks like you're doing really cool stuff. Way to go, man. Hey, likewise, uh, your YouTube channel is, uh, is on, I think it's on a bookmark in one of my tabs here and like all the different information and the people that you visited have been a real inspiration, but tell me a little bit about your own background and how you got passionate about permaculture education and these transitions in lifestyle where you're at. Yeah. Um, you know, it's always hard to talk about yourself, uh, right? But, but, uh, but you get into these uh, conversations and sometimes you have to. Um, so I was very blessed, uh, Oliver. What, one is I didn't know anything about permaculture and I didn't grow up in an agrarian lifestyle. I mean, we, I grew up in the suburbs. We did have a cornfield, probably a GMO cornfield, like half a block down the road. But uh, as far as I knew about corn, it was a cool place to go hide on your bicycle. Like, <laughs> right. you know. um, but, you know, I, I have been kind of like a small and, you know, very small like business owner uh, since like 1998. And I've had like the same business since like 2002, which I still operate um, a lot more hands off today. But, but that led me into that lifestyle of entrepreneurship where I definitely don't regret it. And I highly recommend it to most people because there's no such thing as security. But at the same time, you've, it's, you've got to be able to go, okay, well, this month it's a good month and this month's not a good month. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by around 2007, eight, you know, kind of where, where the recession hit, I was, I was just burned out, man. I, I was burned out. I remember driving up one of our highways here in North Texas and, and the idea of doing something green or eco-friendly. And you have to remember in 2007, like there wasn't any, e- Dallas is not, I mean, we're getting better now, but it definitely wasn't known for anything eco-friendly, right? Sure. And so it was just a thought. Um, and it didn't, it didn't manifest itself. And then somewhere around 2010, I, I wasn't kicked out, but I had to leave the country. And I started my travels and um, uh, I was going back and forth to Central America a, a, lot, of, a lot of times and you know, spending quite a bit of time out of the United States. And it was really my first time to, to experience that kind of stuff. And in one of the trips back here to Texas, I, was, I had two little dogs at the time. I was taking them to a dog park, and it was me and this other guy. And we ended up getting into a conversation and just, you know, sharing some stuff that, you know, we like out of life or want out of life. And I, and I had mentioned to him that I, I don't know anything about finding wild edibles. And so he goes, well, look over there. And I look, kind of look over there to a little riparian area. 
didn't know it was called the riparian area at the time, sure, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking over there and, and he shows me an oak tree and he goes in to tell me about how to make flour from acorns. And my mind was blown. Like if, if my brain was a balloon, like the balloon expanded and it could never be like shrunk down to its original size, right? Mm. So I was totally blown away by that. And while we were leaving each other that evening, he said, but Nicholas, you actually don't want to know that. You want to know this thing called permaculture. And I heard it and I was like, oh, what? And in my brain, if there was like a bookshelf, I just put, put that on the bookshelf. Like, you know what I mean? Like, sure, sure. wasn't interested. And I have to say, uh, if, uh, it, it does go further after that. But even before then, I think I actually met a couple off of an island of the northern part coast of Honduras. And I think they were looking for land. And I remember them saying, I don't remember them saying permaculture, but I remember them saying something like, you grow plants and then you grow other plants amongst that plant so they help each other. And I thought that was fascinating. Um, but I don't, they, they very well may could have said permaculture, but I don't remember. And also at that same time, I, I met another guy on that same island and uh, he owned like half the island and he was creating a, a, like, it wasn't a food forest. It was just an orchard with multi-species. Maybe it was a food forest, but he didn't call it that. So I got to be exposed for it there, but where it, where it actually sank into my brain was later at the dog park. So in any case, I kept traveling around and then I was in this little town called Leon, um, Nicaragua. And at the time it was, it was great. I think they're going through some war or about to go through some civil war or something like that. Now, I don't know, but um, it was very laid back and I really liked the town there. And I had a little tea go a modem, and you, as you know, Central America was was doing uh, internet through the the cell towers way before the United States was, because the United States was still making money on you know broadband stuff, you know, so they didn't want cell towers going everywhere. So, in any case, I, I started looking it up, and I, I looked up the word permaculture, and there was maybe like five or so websites that even kind of mentioned it, and I was it, and it was just pretty much all text, right? And there was like maybe three videos on the internet and two of them are Bill Mollison. And one of them was in grave danger of falling food. And the other one's the global gardener that he did both. of them. Oh the, yeah. Classic. Yeah. In the eighties and Oliver, it was a lightning bolt. Actually, man, I, I would say it was even for me, it was deeper. Uh, you know, cause if you know, Bill, he shoots any sacred cow you have, which is just fine. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But for me, it was like, man, I, I, you know, coming from the background, background, being an entrepreneur, knowing the ups and downs of that, kind of being tired of it, and then you know having a quick jolt of a of an of you know influence from Bill, where it was kind of like, hey, this is something that you can do. It doesn't matter the ups and downs of any kind of market. Like you can pr produce all the things you need. Just before I had a family or anything. Honestly, Oliver, it was like, it was like God, right? Uh, Jesus Christ, like put his finger through my head and like touched my heart. And I saw a vision and this is kind of go gets out there, but I saw a vision of a school and I, had, I knew nothing about permaculture other than watching those couple of videos and reading a little bit. I immediately looked for a permaculture design course uh, near me in Texas. I was ready to jump on a plane that day, which I think it took me maybe three days, four days to get on a plane. Mm. And I came back and I, I took the first like 10 weekend permaculture design course or 10 Saturday permaculture design course I could find uh, with a, a mentor of mine, Dick Pierce, uh, who now lives in Florida. And then after that, I was, um, I started traveling the world. I, 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 
it was the academy session with the third one, I think, with Michael Reynolds there in Taos, New Mexico, learning how to build earth ships. And that's really awesome. Um, I, I, I stayed in the first house uh, made out of tires for like a month, I believe. And, you know, was there a couple months learn, learning from Mike and, and the, the whole crew over there. And then I, I, well, I think before that, I think I, I went out to Australia and I was very blessed. I got to um, and participate in Bill's, uh, Bill and Jeff Lawton's, Bill Mollison and Jeff Lawton's. It was Bill's last permaculture design course that he taught there in Melbourne at the University of Melbourne. And that was a real treasure, you know, like um, I, I have to say I'm very glad I did that. And then I think I came back and I went back a couple of times and I interned and stayed on Jeff's farm for a while and got to know Jeff and, and his heart for helping people and um, came back. And even before I got back, I was having people ask me to, to consult for them. <laughs> it was just blowing my mind. But anyway, I didn't have a vision actually to make any money uh, doing permaculture. I mean, I was, you know, sick of you know, having to be concerned about money, but but in any case, I, I, I was talked by a, a good friend of mine. He was a professional gambler at the time, and he said, you know, you should. And, and so I took his advice uh, after our talk, and I started doing that. But the school was still the major priority. And, hey, look, we've got the School of Permaculture now. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, not looking back, and, you know. For sure. Moving forward to living our stuff, yeah. Man, that's a powerful story that really connects. I, I can remember back to how I felt when I first started to learn about the, the possibility of real solutions to so many of the problems that we see around uh, ourselves in the world and the places that we travel. And it's really cool that, you know, your journey took you to so many of the same places that I've been through in the, in the last handful of years. You know, I did a lot of natural building work just outside of the, uh, the Earthship community in Taos, New Mexico. Um, our our little demonstration farm in Sununa was right down the hill from Shad, who you visited and did some videos with. And um, I actually just spoke with Natalie from Wild Abundance. I know you've been in touch with her as well. There's there's so yeah. many good people in this community putting out incredible work and and really just working towards building the knowledge base of the community of people who can kind of help to further the healing of the planet. And you know. As you're now yeah. transitioning from, from, well, you've, you know, you've got a small family and you're trying to, to live more of the ethics that you've been teaching and designing and promoting and consulting for other people for a long time. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this transition that you're going through at the moment? Well, I mean, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it real with you. I should probably go talk to my wife, right? <laughs> no. so we made a commitment. Keep it as real as possible. Respect, you know. I love her a whole bunch. Um, uh, a real quick thing, though, about what you had said earlier, like uh, Natalie uh, with Wild Abundance, she's doing awesome stuff, man. Like doing honestly, amazing things, yeah. Yeah, no, no, really, really awesome. So, uh, you know, I, obviously I'm not paid by Wild Abundance whatsoever. I just, I'm a fan of her work and what she's doing. And anybody in that region should definitely go, go see what she's up to and take her courses. So in the transition Oh man. So I would say most of my time right now is definitely thinking about what all the steps and all the pieces, right? So when it's just me or if it's just you, um, especially if you're a young male, uh, which I'm, I'm still young, Oliver, I'm still young. 
Hey, you and me both. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. I would say it's definitely a lot easier, right? You can get up and go. And, and then when you get married, it's still pretty easy. But once you have a kid, and, and we have one child, uh, Faithful is her name, my beautiful little girl, um, things, you know, change. And it has definitely been a catalyst on, on uh, one part. It's, it, it's kind of like, look, there's not a safer way to, and as a male of my household, I'm, I'm very much concerned with providing and protecting, right? Uh, those things are just inherent. I take my responsibilities very serious for my family. So if I come to think about it, like, I don't know a better way than permaculture to do that. Like, I wouldn't even say making a billion dollars would do it, right? I mean, money is only valuable because we think it's valuable, right? Seeds well, are actually it's, valuable. Right? Sure. It's, it's only real value is in its use as a tool, not as a means, or not as an end product. Yeah. I mean, if, if you know, I'm not fear-based, but if there was zombie apocalypse, I mean, what's money going to be good for? Like tender for fires and like wiping your butt. Like, sure, you know sure. I mean? so, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's definitely useful in our current paradigm. And, you know, I, I, I'm on board and I get it and I understand. Uh, but, but you hear what I'm saying. It's like, you know, learning from it's how can I provide the things that I feel I should provide as the father and the husband in my family? And I don't know a better way than, through the concepts of permaculture, which is indigenous wisdom and appropriate tech anyhow, right? So that's like the main focus. And I tell you, uh, even though since my wife and I met, I've already been on this journey of teaching permaculture and consulting and, and working in this nonprofit realm. Um, but as we're transitioning, especially with a child, she's definitely got some <laughs> concerns, you know? Absolutely. And that's been that's been another element that I, that neither one of us expected, you know? Um, and, you know, obviously we're, 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 one, we're moving forward, but two, you know, we're working through that and it makes people, I think, become stronger together, definitely bringing up those concerns and talking through them. And it's not something that can quickly be accomplished uh, going over those concerns. And, and, and it brings a lot of light to, to somebody who's like motivated to do it. You know, mm. for example, you, had a child and, and, and a wife, which Oliver, I don't think you do. Um, no, sure. no. Yeah, yeah. But say that was the case. And then, you know, she was on board and all of a sudden said, Hey, look, I, I'm, I'm having lots of doubts and questions. I mean, it would get you to doubt and question, which should happen actually to flush out. Is this something that is really beneficial to moving forward? And so you're coming from kind of a fairly typical suburban lifestyle and moving towards what kind of paint a picture for me as to what you're aspiring to now. You are correct. So we had a suburban plot uh, north of Dallas, Texas, in a little town called Plano. And Plano is actually still where we teach um, our six-month permaculture design course, Plano, Texas. And um, I don't know, I think it was 909 when we got the note on that and, and just completely took off all the grass, every square inch, little tiny swales, mandala gardens, uh, you know, greenhouses attached to your house, uh, irrigation systems. I mean, basically permaculture, right? Homesteading on a suburban level. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, like one of the terrible things there is that particular area does not allow you to have chickens. And so I think the whole state of Texas is trying to move towards a number of chickens, with very limited restrictions, but uh, it, it, you know, 
it's one of the most un-American things you can do is tell people they can't grow their own food, right? And have healthy eggs. But that's a whole nother topic for another day, Oliver. I'm not bitter at all <laughs> talking about it. No, but I totally hear you. Uh, I totally hear you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah, so selling that property and then transitioning out um, is, is, is the goal and, and what our major objectives are, are it's kind of a, a three tiered. So the first thing is family first. Um, you, you know, it's almost like, look, if you get a desire to change the world and love people and help them, you really can't do it unless you're taking care of yourself. Uh, I think even Bill said, you know, what's the prime directive? Do you remember? It's uh, to, I don't remember it off the top of my head. Take responsibility for uh, uh, yourself and of your children and like do it now, right? And I It's the same it. reason why they tell you to put the oxygen mask on yourself before helping others in an airplane, right? You're going to be compromised exactly. if you're not coming from a base of security yourself. Yeah, so our number one goal in this transition is to have all our, uh, most of the resources for our family under control. So food, and that goes from you know chickens, pigs, sheep, cattle, uh, to some fish and all the plant, you know, both garden, both perennial food forest, and and also standard annual production. Like I'm really, I'm really looking forward to growing einkorn wheat and most people would be mm. like, that has nothing to do with permaculture. It's not perennial at all. Completely correct. Uh, but I will tell you, it's a, it's a, it's a great plant to grow. Uh, it's human food, it's livestock food and it's bedding out the wazoo. I just need a little bit of research. I think when people learn how to bundle it and shock it up and utilize it appropriately, even store it outside for your livestock. I think, um, it's just a, a good thing to do. I will say, though, as a little tangent, do not grow modern wheat. It's got like 42 chromosomes. It's a mutant. You know, einkorn is the oldest strain that we know of. has 14. Uh, I just highly recommend if you're going to grow any kind of wheat, make sure it's an ancient grain like emmer or einkorn or something like that. Hmm. But in any case, so, you know, I just cooked some biscuits this morning from some einkorn flour that was grown down near Austin. And literally right before we started. So <laughs> I've got, I've got, I've got. Uh, uh, baking and flour on the brain. So in any case, uh, you know, putting those systems together, it's the first goal really is, is family, right? Family first. Or is our house under control, right? Is our water systems under control or food growing systems? If we're going to have electricity, which we will. Matter of fact, I told my wife that, uh, you know, we're not going to have a dryer. And she says, what? I said, yeah, we're just going to hang up our clothes. What? Right? So, <laughs> I love how that. foreign that concept is in the United <laughs> States. Like even here in Europe, people who make middle-class incomes or more, most people don't have a dryer. I don't know why it's so common just in that side of the world, but like I haven't had one living here in an apartment with my partner since, you know, just a couple of months since I got here. And like you get by just fine. Now, granted, both of us are in kind of drier, warmer climates and it's, I lived in England for a while where they were drying things just in the living room when it's cold and wet outside. It does take longer, <laughs> but it's right, right. no, important of a concept. <laughs> I'll bring that up to Christy at the same time though. Like I want to provide for her. I want her comfortable. She wants to do and dryer. We'll figure it out. Like we'll put a generator on something. Like you know, so we'll figure it out. So, <laughs> but thank you for, for telling me that you could make the same argument where, you know, why don't you harvest 
rainwater off your roof, people in the United States. It almost it's like common ethic in Australia, right? It's, yeah. It yeah. Make sense. Yep. No, it's funny, um, the, the different norms and expectations in different places, it's kind of a lot of it comes with what you grew up with. Um, that determines your baseline for what you think is strange or beyond the norm. And, you know, if everybody around you has chickens and is harvesting rainwater and drying their clothes on a rack, it's not weird to make that transition. And then if, you know, somebody else is doing it with a machine, it's like, wow, that probably costs a lot of money. But if you get used to that as your, your baseline when you're growing up, it's, a, it's, a, it's an adjustment, I guess, when you go to a different system. And you have to decide like what level of comfort versus what level of autonomy and security you're, you're going to find that balance in, right? Really easy to do when it's just you. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. <laughs> yep. I think I had a mentor of mine tell me at one point, like, um, everything's easy in permaculture until you add the people, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. But, you know, that, goes to, that goes to a whole other aspect of yeah, yeah, it's a huge variable. Yeah. Well, so Which is look, I'm, I'm curious, before we dig more into like where you're transitioning to, I know like you had just mentioned, you had really kind of established as many of the permaculture and appropriate technology things in your suburban, we'll call it suburban homestead, um, before selling that property. Can you tell me kind of how far you got with that project, what level of autonomy you reached and what was, I mean, other than not being able to have chickens, what was kind of the, the last straw that made you think you needed to transition to something bigger and more independent? That's a good question. So originally the concept was to both have the farm site and the suburban site for demonstration ability. So kind sure. of, this kind of ties into the question before. Uh, so, so actually let me go just finish that question real quick. Yeah, go I can ahead. Do it real quick. So the first thing is, is for a family, right? And then secondary after the family, it's our school. It's still very important, but like our school will be headquartered there and housed there as well as our, as our, but, it, but it's family first and then our school and then tertiary to that, which I don't think I could stop myself is the weaving of enterprise, right? Whether it be, you know, we'll harvest a cow. We have three of them, three mouths to feed and one's real little. And, you know, we have so much meat on the weekends, have a burger place, uh, literally on the corner of our land uh, and or uh, chicken, you know, creating meat birds and with our milk and growing our own sorghum, you know, having our own sweeteners and dairy to do like an ice cream shop or our, we'll have many buildings that we'll have on the site that will be naturally created uh, with instruments in them to, to record and, and mine all the data over a certain period of time. So those can also be exported or used as Airbnb or something like that, right? So there's enterprises interwoven with this, but that's still not the, that's tertiary on the, on the agenda uh, to complete your, to, to complete the answer to your question. So, which that kind of drives me over to the uh, answering this other question, which is like, Hey, um, you know, what part of autonomy? So you have to understand my goals at the time, I didn't have a family, right? So it was like suburban site and then demonstration on the farm site. Site. So things have changed. Um, so the final straw was not so much out of haste or anger or anything like that. It was, we, we took a new look. We took a new look. We, we explored different opportunities. We weren't even sure if going out to that farm was a good thing. Maybe sell both uh, properties and go to a smaller farm closer in town because we're like hour and a half away from any major city. Um, 
and it's it's actually it's as rural as you, you can get other than West Texas and Texas. So we think there's about 50 to 100 people in our town out by our farm. So it is mm. quite a transition. Um, and the closest town next to us that does have a census has 200 people. So <laughs> there is that. Yep. Um, so That's pretty it, out there. It, the, the, the final straw really was just a reassessment of where we're at what's most important to us and family was definitely at the top. And then um, also I'm not getting any younger, man. And so, you know, and I, I carry quite a load already. Uh, praise the Lord. I'm not complaining whatsoever. And, you know, with a family and, you know, schooling that's going to be coming up and a suburban site and a, and a farm. It's, it was quite a lot. Not that we won't work with other people. It's just what can we handle? And, it seemed to be the best option. Uh, and there's a lot of details I'm leaving out here, but, um, but family, I would say would be the biggest catalyst of let's sell the suburban site and move out to the farm. Sure. Sure. And so like I asked, um, what were kind of the limits, the, the things that you found you really wanted or were important to that transition that the suburban site just couldn't facilitate? Oh, well, obviously, you know, chickens right i mean <laughs> it's all about the chickens chicken, huh yeah well it's not all about it's just uh you know i it's they're just so darn useful in just creating food in multiple ways right that's i would integrating say animals in general right if you don't do that you're yeah. you're sentencing yourself to do all the work that they would have done for free essentially there you go there you yeah. go. And, and, and I was the animal on the other side, right? Other than worms. <laughs> so, and that's what you do if you don't have animals working your site for you. And, and the, the, the massive amount of uh, insect life that we attracted. And actually, I could, I, it was very interesting. We're in the suburbs, but one day I, I walked outside and there was a wild turkey. And it was that day I was like, okay, I think I've made it. I think I'm a permaculturist now. <laughs> <laughs> or wild turkey, like landed in a suburb, like literally middle of the suburbs. Um, I was thinking, you know, we, we have an ecosystem here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's kind of fun. But yeah, I, there's limiting factors. We didn't, I, I, with me, it's a little bit different because I knew I wanted another a, a site like a farm as well as a suburban site. But if I, if I look at it from more analytical approach it would be well i wanted room right i wanted more room um, mm -hmm. obviously i wanted to raise my my family on a, a more agrarian lifestyle um and all that that entails um there's only so much production with the current design that we had on there that we could integrate it was main its main purpose was a demonstration site not only to produce a ton of resources which minor tweaks could have helped with that. Um, and I probably not enough, uh, not large enough water features to do other things that I, I have desired to integrate into a more, um, I, I will say like closed loop system. I think aquatic or aquaculture is definitely a huge part of that. Mm -hmm. You get so much bang for your buck nutrition wise. I mean, for example, um, we all know this, but we don't put it together. So so we have, so we have some, you know, infinity garden chicken system, you know, running a garden and chickens together. And then most people are still buying feed. I mean, so, so I, I just think we should definitely focus on at minimum your chickens, if you're homesteading or if you're, 
you know, designing and, and producing for your family, not to market, then you shouldn't have to buy any of the food for your chickens. You know, if you have a reasonable size flock, you know, it's, it's when you start selling chickens, that's when it makes sense to buy feed or at the very beginning. But for, you know, for example, like I mentioned, growing grains, like oats, bro, they're strong, right? You grow in your wheat, they get two, they, they get multiple harvests from that. You can throw your chickens on in the late fall. You can throw your chickens on in the late fall while the wheat, the winter wheat's coming up and they get, you can graze them, right? And then the wheat goes dormant. And then over that time, you're, <clears throat> you had your, your forest system, for example, at the late part of winter here where we're at in the United States, we've got persimmons and we've got all the nuts, you know, your walnuts, pecans and acorns. And then also if we back up in the summertime, we're, we're also harvesting our root crops like sweet potato. And you know, so you've got to grate that sweet potato and the sweet potato leaves there and, you know, turnips and, and any root vegetables. So, you know, you stage this to, to always have some food at the very beginning of spring where we're at mulberries are the first thing that pop up a little further South. You got mulberries and loquats. And you mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you're able to, to harvest and keep into um, storage these, these perennial and annual crops because wheat will actually store a while and so will oats for your livestock and for yourself. It just makes a lot of sense. And, and if you want to top that all off at the top of your garden area, say you had a little slope is a perfect place to put in a large garden pond, not a small one, like a five gallon bucket. I'm substantial, like maybe, uh, you know, one tenth of an acre or something like that. Yeah. And inside of there, you grow, you grow your duck wheat, but you, you purposely grow the duckweed in a place where when it heavy rains and it overflows, the duckweed lands in your garden bed. Because, you know, as a permaculturist, we're trying to create a sponge of our landscape, but we also want to clean up any water or air or anything that goes to the property down, uh, down the watershed from us. So understanding that, it's like they might not want duckweed. So, so if you have duckweed and you're doing for a system like this because you want to harvest the duckweed to put in for the chickens or the compost, then have it go through a biological filter like a garden before it, it can go off the property and die from the sun and the seeds get cooked out or something like this. Sure, sure, that makes sense. And then underneath the duck, we eat like goldfish. Goldfish are super hardy, but so every other day you basically harvest half the duck wheat, you give it to your chickens. The next day you harvest a good handful or two of fry or fingerling goldfish and give those to your chickens. And then that's how you get those deep yellow yolks, right? <clears throat> and then, you know, grow the hornwort inside your little pond up there. So you don't have to have a pump always aerating your system. A hornwort will oxygenate. It's one of the plants that will oxygenate a pond. It's also a floating plant and secondary goldfish eat their own eggs. And so as they put eggs all over that hornwort, there's lots of places for those eggs to hide so they don't all get pre- uh, eaten by that goldfish so like things like that you can't do something like that at a at the scale of like you know all of your chicken all of your egg vast majority of your your vegetation is going to come from a small suburban site and i say can't you know that's you know there's always going to be an exception that's for the most part and so it was one of the reasons we kind of wanted to get a little bit bigger yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Like, there's just space limitations on a small suburban lot that you can't overcome. And it's one of those factors that, you know, is beyond your control. And so 
tell me about sort of the larger vision and some of the challenges that you foresee coming with a big move to a rural area after, you know, community especially being such a large part of your life and your work where you're living or where you were living up until recently. No, I, this, this community has been one of the things that have been thrown around a lot. Um, like, what are you going to do being so far away? I'm not concerned about that whatsoever. Everywhere we go, we create community. And so, mm. I mean, you, you can't, like, once you sit down with me, you can't get me to stop talking, right? So I'm, <laughs> I'm an educator, so I'm going to get sit there, I'm going to tell you about uh, ancient Roman systems of growing food or what Pliny the Elder was talking about when he was singing stanzas or writing stanzas in agriculture or the soil erosion and how it's a silent killer. So as far as like creating community, um, yeah, that's one way. But then the other way is, you know, as homeschooling, we plan on having being part of a homeschool co-op. So local families will actually come onto our farm and see what we're doing. And I'm talking local, like even to the Metroplex because homesteading families are very peculiar about what they learn. Mm -hmm. And so this will provide, you know, uh, when I say this part of the community is like people we hang out with or at least, you know, raise families together with. There's that. But there's also the long-term apprentice uh, programs, right? So uh, um, let's, let's just say an Airbnb was popping out and somebody came out and they wanted to explore this lifestyle because, it's getting real. The millennials, I mean, tiny homes are going to be what millennials can only afford the rich millennials at some point, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So there, you know, there's the future goes on. It's like, okay, look, we know nothing about growing food. Right? We, we don't, you know, some kids don't even know what a tomato looks like. So where, where can I go and actually learn about this? So like a staycation. And so they come on site, they basically, you know, they're safe. And they have a place to like literally learn, like how do you milk a cow, right? How do you uh, uh, take care of chickens and a garden and understand water systems? Uh, how do you understand climate and geology and things like this? So it's like, okay, as that population is becoming larger and larger, they're going to want places like that. So that's one way to kind of pull in a temporary community and the same thing with like the apprentices right so our apprentices who knows like we, we we're not on the farm full-time yet but it could very well be 30 days it could very well be two years um you know and and we're trying to combine that with our aid work as well and and and, and who knows where we'll go right so there's multiple aspects of where community will come from in our own personal lives and i think everybody's going to be different like if you get somebody who's once they sit down with you, they don't want to tell you the anthropological and archaeological evidence of the uh, of barley of the Levant. Then you know they're going to create they're going to create their own ideas on how community should look. That's good for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your motivations um, of prioritizing homesteading because I know that this is something that's important to a lot of people looking to make a transition to this type of lifestyle. It's also taking control and responsibility for what they're teaching their children or the children of other people in their community. I actually was homeschooled through a homeschooling co-op for a year myself when I was in sixth grade. It's not something that we stuck with throughout my entire schooling career, but I got to see a little bit of it from you know, a student when I was younger and with friends who have homeschooled their kids as they're older. Tell me a little bit, of, like I said, about your motivations and why this is a priority for you. Well, I mean, other than there's a lot there, <laughs> Oliver. There is a lot. There, um, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot. So one of the reasons is I saw a vision of, of this, right? So um, I, I'm, a, I'm a God-fearing man. I love Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and Savior, right? So um, one of the things is, you know, I could go back in scripture and Jesus talks about agrarian lifestyle, right? He also talks, he was, a, his dad was a carpenter. He was a carpenter. So, uh, and, and in the, in the Greek, the word carpenter also means craftsman. So for me, like one of the factors is how can I be more like Jesus, right? And so one of the things is, well, go build something, uh, you know, with wood, be a craftsman and his parables and what he spoke, he was speaking to an agrarian culture and talking about seed and agriculture and trees and the environment. And even back in Genesis, the, the, you know, while we were in the garden, we were, God said, tend the garden, right? Walk with me in the morning, tend the garden. And even when we were kicked out, right? God's commandment to, to Adam was by the sweat of your brow, you will work the land through the thistles and the thorns, right? Paraphrasing. And so that's one motivating factor. And I would say that's an intangible yield for me and my family because, you know, we, we want to love people. And the way to love people is to emulate who Jesus was. Um, so like that's a, but for us, that's a big drive. Um, the other drives I would say are a little bit more um, heady is, or let's say logical, where it's kind of like, look, I don't want to be dependent upon any kind of market that kind of enslaves people first and foremost and forces me to do something that takes me away from my family, like a standard job or even an entrepreneurial enterprise. And so, you know, this, once, once I could figure out we can actually cool homes using the sun without electricity in the state of Texas, I think that was like the, the, the nail that sealed the coffin. Right. Mm. So once, so it's like, okay, like, all right, we can actually do this. We can actually do it. And so this was, you know, back in the early stages of, you know, early stages of training, right. Uh, myself learning permaculture and all that. And so it just makes logical sense for us. Like it, I'm not fear mongering. Uh, that's not the right term. I, I, I'm not fear based is what I'm saying. I'm not fear based at all, but I don't want to be dependent on some job or an entrepreneurial endeavor or real estate or anything like that or a market when it comes to doing my deep responsibility of taking care of my family, mm -hmm. right? For me, that's, that's extremely good. And, and look, we can grow together as a family and produce food, you know, have clean water, doing it uh, in a design system where it lessens the amount of work that our uh, couple of generations ago we would just complain about, right? I'm not saying there's not going to be work. I'm just saying it, there wasn't a lot of design prior to, you know, 1900, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, that didn't enslave people really kind yeah. of 1930, 1950, but, but yeah. Um, so I'd say that's a motivating catalyst. And then the desire, it goes back again to the desire to love people. And I, I could get behind a pulpit or something like that, but, but we choose education and this is a tangible way. So, so say churches are, or synagogues or mosques or whoever nearby, they want to go do aid work in other countries like mission work. But look, like, what are you going to do? You're going to show up with a hammer and take a couple of selfies. Like, you know, there's a book out there. I think it's called when, when helping hurts or something like that, mm. where it shows how aid work is like creating a dependent culture. Like, no man, let's, let's come and learn permaculture at the school of permaculture and then go do your mission trip. Whether And it doesn't like, literally it doesn't matter if you're in a mosque or a synagogue or a church, like, you know, just like Jesus, we welcome like literally all people. 
so like, okay, come over and then like go, go out into the world, right? Uh, like, like sheep amongst the wolves, go out into the world and, and like help people and remind them like this is their indigenous culture that we're just reminding you of. And, and maybe the idea, and, and I like capitalism and I like the American dream for America, but you know, most of the people that want to like live the American dream, they're living in paradise, man. Like we were talking, you were saying like, you've been down to Central America and Guatemala. Like that place is literal paradise. Yeah. But the concept is, no, we need to have these large fincas and plantations and sell stuff and make money. Like, I don't know, man. Like, is that, is that the end all be all? When you're literally living in paradise? Maybe well, it's tricky. I mean, stuff. so many of the exploitative colonization history of that area is behind the structure of who owns the land, what it's used for and how it's been exploited over time. Uh, and the fact that, you know, the, the corruption endemic of, of that area, not to say that it's not just as rampant in our own countries. I mean, it gets really, really heady when you talk about how places like that have been come to, to be governed and, and land be distributed to what it is now. So, I mean, I hate to, to no, simplify yeah, how yeah. it's become, but yeah, I mean, you make a great point that like, at least environmentally, it has, you know, all the resources that anyone could want. It comes, you know, with some difficulties. There's definitely challenges to living in a tropical environment, but it's one of the most biodiverse regions in the world. And yeah, uh, given that it's a place that people are fleeing at the moment to come up to the United States or to try to get to other places really goes to show that it's a management problem, not a baseline ecological issue. Yeah, there's a lot that you kind of went over just then. There's probably at least six talking points. <laughs> um, but, but, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out which one do I want to re respond to. But uh, yes, let's go with the first one. Like the Banana Republic and what happened down in Central America. It was, it, plus with the espionage and replacing governments and replacing uh, heads of state or heads of countries there through the you know, central intelligence agency or through our own government uh, organ, uh, dealings. It's just, it, it, it wasn't good for people in the planet as we're seeing now. Um, mm. in, in one, one frame of reference, there's a good argument to be made. Well, look at the economies and how we're able to do money. And, and look, capitalism is actually not terrible except for, um, when you look at violent crime and if everybody's rich, there's very low homicide, violent crime. If everybody's poor, there's very low uh, homicide and violent crime is when there's inequality of income. Uh, you have young men who commit violent, very violent homicide and crime uh, in the inequality stage. Capitalism does breed that. Right. And so like, a, there's a lot to talk about there. there is, <laughs> so, yeah. We're getting really into the weeds at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Let me direct this just a little bit more so that we can focus on on like the aspects that you and I can really relate to at this point. Because as we were talking just before the interview, we realized that both of us are kind of in the early stages of a big transition to a more uh, rural and a more land-based lifestyle. And that both of us have worked as designers and consultants for a lot of other people and educators uh, in the past. And this has really shaped the way that uh, we go about problem solving on new endeavors, but I think both of us struggle at least at this stage of the transition in taking our own advice and applying what we've used uh, in advice and, and design process for other people 
and really kind of starting from the beginning as if we were our own clients and doing a thorough job of working through the steps that we've guided other people through. Because, you know, I was just telling you a minute ago, my tendency is to skip steps because I've gone through them so many times and, and I, you know, there, it requires yeah. a little bit of humility and starting from the beginning. Uh, how have you been kind of guiding yourself through your own process in this transition? Yeah, man, that's a great, thanks for answering that. And, and this is probably good for people who are like, you're trying to do like making this transition. This is, it's, it's easy. It's a lot easier to design and consult for other people. And it's mm -hmm. not like the steps aren't, aren't solid. That's not the problem when you're doing it for yourself is you're just so close to it. And there's so many things that you don't know that you're not relying on an expert to help you or expert title. Um, you're kind of doing this yourself. And then you're like, well, what if, and then what if, and this may go good over here. And so it, mm -hmm. it's not like it breaks the confidence. It's just more difficult to make decisions firmly on your own property when you're talking about the rest of your life. Uh, if we were to, you know, who knows if I were to hire somebody, I, a little bit of that is like giving over the delegation of responsibility. Like, well, you spent the last X amount of years studying this. You're going to know what's good and I'm going to trust you. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there, there's a bit of that that's easy to do as a client. And it's just for me, like you had mentioned, it's hard to be my own client. Right. <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. I'm a, I'm a terrible client to myself. How about that? <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no, but like one yeah. thing that I'm finding, um, that I need to get over for myself is like both of us have pretty large networks of people that we've spoken to and connected with in the past, me through the podcast, you through the YouTube channel and a whole bunch of other avenues. Um, I'm finding that like having the humility of going back and asking people with more experience, especially in certain aspects of design, like people who just know water systems to a level of depth that I am not at or people who understand like monetizing small farm enterprises much better than I've ever had the experience to work with and realizing that, you know, these resources are out there. We don't have to make the decisions ourselves. I would even encourage, and I have in the past, uh, clients or collaborators or team members to, to really reach out to the network that's there. Um, and, you know, I'm totally willing to pay even as a professional consultant, other people who know these things much better than I do, um, especially when I'm coming into a new context that I'm not familiar with or an ecosystem that I haven't studied or interacted with in depth. Have you reached out to other people in your network in the process or are you really trying to like walk through from the beginning these steps for yourself? You know, you're, you're nothing standing out right at the top of my head. I've been in the process for a while, right? So mm. uh, in, this, in this particular conversation right now, and I'm sure when we're done with it, I'm going to go, oh, I forgot this person and this person and this person, right? Uh, but like literally at this moment, um, no, no, I, I got a good one. So I've got some buddies there um, who, who are professionals, have their own businesses, <clears throat> a couple of them actually one Jose down there in Mexico um he helped start permaculture Mexico he was help advising me on an earth bag build and then on our house build i have a, a long time um apprentice of Mike Reynolds actually the guy who draws Mike's maps mm. uh, or his his plans or he used to um working with him um so on the construction part of it and I've definitely 
Um, I work with, so here's something very interesting too, just as, as in general, as a consultant, especially if it's, even if it's in my own area, but especially if it's in another area, right? Um, I, I actually do work with the NRCS. Um, NRCS is the, the um, um, I'm drawing a blank at this Digital moment. mapping uh, software. Uh, national Resource Conservation Service. It was the national, I hope it's national. Oh, was I thinking NCGIS or something? Yeah, I think you were thinking, yeah, like uh, like GIS software. This is the, maybe that's what it is. I always uh, forget the acronyms; they're so hard to keep straight. They are. So it's part of the they're they're an offshoot of the USDA, and believe it or not, there's some great methodologies that the USDA or through the NRCS have done. You know, back when his name's on the tip of tip of my tongue, but right during the recession of the, the thirties, the president there, Roosevelt, don't get me lying at this moment. And, um, Hugh Hammond was put in charge of like, you know, creating some type of system that, that stopped the dust bowl, right. And through the terracing of the thirties and all that. So like, we've been looking at American agriculture. I have the actual first yearbook of agriculture. And then I have the first book of the, um, uh, not the, the one that did before the yearbook of agriculture. I'm, not, I'm drawing a blank on it. And then I have the first one in the transition. So it was, it was only, I think, 1830 when we started looking at the documenting what went on the year prior in the, in the, in the whole of the United States. And so there's a lot of good data that the USDA and the NRCS has. And, and I'm a permaculturist and most people would be like, don't listen to what they say when they come into this holistic our sustainable agriculture like framework, right? But I'm going to say no. Like, listen. Like, it, you have to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff with everything. What that means is, then RCS has a ridiculous amount of data, and they've had they have great engineers that are free to every everybody. Like, you don't even have to be a citizen. Like, you you can go into the these offices which are in every county, and they got great data. Where you have to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff, or what's good for you, what's bad, is, you know. The USDA, the NRCS in general is also in league with chemical companies. So when they start mentioning, you know, putting atrazine, which atrazine is terrible, um, or glyphosate on crops, then it's like, look, I'm going to listen for other solutions. Sure. Well, much yeah. like, you know, um, conventional medicine and doctors, like their, their diagnosis tools and their instruments and stuff are extremely precise. Now, I don't always go with their recommended advice on how to treat an illness or treat a, uh, the symptoms, but you can't really fault the way that they gather information, right? Yeah. And so, like, so to answer your question, it, I'm going to agree with you. Yes, exactly. Like, it, it, things are tools, and then what, how you use the tools, like, you, you're, the, you're the behavior modifier of the tool. Right. Mm, mm. So, yeah. So, so like if you are in another country even, and there isn't a governmental service, it's like there potentially might be a university next to you who will have some of this data, sure. whether it be uh, uh, geographic, geologic, climate, soil, uh, uh, agricultural, right. And all that data. I mean, look, if you're doing a permaculture design, you're getting sector data, you're getting it from some organization that, captured that data and recorded it unless you have your own weather station or something like that. Right. So we do this inherently without thinking about it. 
I'm just saying, no, 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 go ahead and go for it. So if I'm going to consult for my own property or somebody else's, going back to answer your question, I, part of my auxiliary team is already the built-in, um, we, we have a couple of large nonprofits in this region of the United States here too that are just agricultural. Like there's a couple of you know, really big oil tycoons and they died and put their money into an estate. So they have a nonprofit for almost eternity and they yeah. like help farmers in the region, right? It's kind of cool, right? Yeah. Um, so there's like scientists and engineers and um, agriculturists, grazers, you know, who've been doing this a long time. And some of them are familiar with like, like holistic management and permaculture and things like this. And some of them are not. But the point is, you know, they're all here. They're willing to help you. They want to help you. I've made really good friends with NRCS agents. Um, matter of fact, they, they all, most of them come to me like, dude, you're living the life I want to live. Like they, they want to be, they want to advise permaculture basically, but their hands are tied being an employee of the federal government. Like, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I would say that's where I, I've, I've spent most of my, um, for not only for, for my stuff, but for other people's stuff, like, you know, I, it's part of my system actually to consult is to do that. Um, but to say like, you know, some of my mentors or other folks, um, that do this for, for, um, you know, living, I, I, nothing's coming to my head right this moment. And now that you're bringing it up, I'm thinking about doing it. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. Well, it's good. There's, I mean, there's just so many resources out there and along those lines, like, much like I have, you've traveled a lot to interview people living this lifestyle and to document the techniques that have worked for them. Uh, what are some of the most memorable things that you've learned in your travels and your investigations and in this type of, uh, I guess, not just lifestyle, but way of interacting with the earth? Yeah. Um, it's some of the tenants. So bringing to life some of the tenant things that we learned at the beginning. Um, you cannot possibly know everything. So love to learn, love it. Um, interact with people and read a lot of books and then experiment. Um, I mean, watch and don't get me wrong. Watch YouTube videos too. Those are great. Uh, we're in a new paradigm, right? Like, 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 I think I heard somebody say like, it's, it's basically, it's like a Gutenberg revolution, like YouTube, like, you know, or, Mm. or like, you know, even more so than the T than the TV because anybody can make data. So yeah. that's, I, I would say at the very top, it's um, love to learn. And there is really no such thing as an expert. It's just somebody who's failed a lot of times and, and who can, has a persistence to keep going. Um, and, you know, and, and then listen to people who make mistakes like, for example, Mike Reynolds, I don't know another architect or builder on the planet who's built more natural or recycled building homes than Mike and his team. And they've made a crap ton of mistakes. And I actually trust him because of that. Sure. Not that he's got everything perfect and, and, and nailed down, which... No, but they're transparent about it, yeah. And they, they yeah, talk about know? what they've learned in the yeah. process, yeah, for sure. Well, look, along those lines, Nick, before we wrap up here, can you tell our listeners how they can find some of the resources, the workshops and, and different teaching tools that you have available? Yeah. Um, so our website is schoolofpermaculture.com. Uh, it's not a .org, it's a .com. And it's 
no reason other than .com was available. That's why we went .com. <laughs> and if you are local to this North Texas region, and we've had people from Brazil, um, from uh, the Pacific Northwest, from all the states around Texas come and do it. We do permaculture design courses here. Um, we also have some online courses, uh, which is one of the tools that we have at the school is the landscape assessment tool. It's very useful. It helps you in consulting, which in effect helps you to design because you actually can't create a design without being kind of like an ethical physician, right? We want to look at all the data. Uh, matter of fact, let me just say like, you know, there's some guidelines real quick here. Let me give you this. So there's some guidelines when it comes to permaculture consulting that, uh, that I've created. So one is your decisions are dependent upon data right? That's like right at the top of the list. So not, not so much your desires, but the data and then your desire it's up there, but you know, just because you want a pond in that place is, doesn't mean you should, you should not elicit professional advice uh, before consulting the landscape and then interviewing either yourself or whoever hired you, right? It could be you um, or the site maintainers. Um, there's risk involved in everything, but don't take unnecessary risks to the mm -hmm. best of your ability, do not suggest any strategy, method, or technique. Uh, and like I said, to the best of your ability, don't uh, advise any strategy, method, or technique that puts the person who hired you, and that could be you, at risk of losing like finances or large vegetating plantings or soil or even their homestead. And then to wrap that up, right, there's like five of these. If you make a mistake, which is going to happen, correct it. Uh, as fast as you can and to the best of your ability. So <clears throat> I say that because, you know, if you want to go take this online landscape, uh, landscape assessment tool that comes with like a two hour course, uh, that's some top things to know. And you can get that at the school of permaculture's website in the online courses section. Uh, also get on our email list. We're going to have a, an online PDC again, probably late this year. And I, I think it's like 800 bucks, but like the first hundred people who sign up is like $350, right? And you'll get a certificate in the mail from the School of Permaculture and we do it live. Um, so it's a good deal, uh, but, but only the people on our email list, I think, will be notified about that. And then we've got the Facebook stuff, um, School of Permaculture on Facebook. Also, um, it's not very big. There's like a thousand people, but I have a group that... Um, I love to study. Um, that's one of the things I, I love to learn. So I'm reading all the time. And so that along with experimentations and research and talking to colleagues, I have a group called the school of permaculture research group and it's tied to the school of permaculture, Facebook page, but come on there. And you know, I, I post um, quite a bit of uh, data on there when time allows uh, that goes deep into specific, you know, techniques, mathematics of, of doing specific things. And then there's our YouTube channel. Uh, please subscribe. Uh, we're actually about to launch a whole slew of new stuff. So um, I'd love to see it. We'd love to have you a part of our School of Permaculture stuff and then uh, hopefully meet you in person too. Fantastic. Yeah, definitely that YouTube channel. I've actually got the Mediterranean Tree Guilds That Work video up right oh. now. I've been looking into other stuff, especially around things that people have done in Mediterranean climates before and using that as kind of inspiration for what I find is possible on, you know, the, the upcoming projects I've got here too. So 
yeah, great job on putting out those resources. I, I've gotten so much value out of those. And man, Nicholas, it's just been great catching up with you and finally getting to connect uh, in on this format. Man, it was a great, I really enjoyed talking with you, uh, Oliver, and, and getting to know you better. And I'm looking forward to also meeting you uh, one day. And, uh, you know, it, it sounds like España, is, is that right? So that's right. I know we're, we are planning a European thing here in the next few years. Maybe uh, we can stop by over there and, and check out what you're doing if you're Oh, very exciting. Yes, by all means, please do let me know if you make that happen and we'll stay in touch for sure. All right, Nicholas, again, thanks so much for your time and we'll catch up again soon. Take care, bud. Bless you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.